Hello and welcome to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and today we're looking at the world's cities, places of opportunity and inequality, where more than half the world's people live and work and why they're so important for the environment. What happens in cities has a direct linkage with the goals that we're trying to achieve under the Sustainable Development Goals or the Paris Climate Agreement. We also hear about the solutions and advances that are coming out of the world's urban areas. We see a fantastic amount of innovation. There are really good things going on there that is a lot to learn from. The sound of bustle, traffic, building work, of hundreds, thousands, millions of people going about their daily lives. But the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa is more than that. It's also a magnet, drawing people in as they search for jobs and better lives. Over half of the world's population now lives in cities, and in environmental terms, that creates both massive challenges and massive opportunities. Here at the World Resources Institute, we're publishing a major new report towards a more equal city, pulling together six years of research and insights, looking at these challenges and opportunities through the lens of equity. More on that later. But first, to WRI's president and CEO, Ani Dasgupta, for the big picture. Why should everyone examining environmental and developmental issues make sure they look first to the world's urban areas? They need to focus on cities simply because most people in the world live in cities today and more people in the world will live in cities today, meaning about 70-80% of people and human activity will happen in cities. Because most people live in cities, most of the emission that takes place in the world is actually happening not in cities, but because of activity in cities. So if you want to reduce emissions in the world, you want to make sure you actually have successful cities, cities that are thriving, cities that are low carbon. And the third reason, you absolutely want to focus on cities because a lot of the problems we have to solve for climate, for development, for poverty are essentially collective action problems where society has to come together and solve them. Government, civil society, businesses. And the cities are a fantastic kind of incubation for such solutions. And you see this across. There are 5,000 cities in the world. Each one of them are trying their best to innovate. So for the innovation on the solution, you want to focus on cities. For these three reasons, for people, for climate, and for innovation, it's critical to see not only focus on cities to make sure all our cities are successful, We recently passed the point where more than half of the world's people live in urban areas. So what are the other big trends that we need to know to understand what's happening in cities at the moment? One is cities in some parts of the world are growing exponentially. So mostly sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. But they're not growing in the traditional way that we used to know how Asia grew or Latin America grew. Three things are different. One, smaller cities are growing faster rather than the biggest cities like the what we call mega cities today. This is very important because the second thing, because it's these cities that are growing, do not have the resources to manage a complicated thing like a city. So they're growing without a lot of planning, a lot of infrastructure. Often in Sub-Saharan Africa, cities are growing horizontally, meaning they're spreading. This is actually not good for climate, people or the economy. So the kind of urbanization that's taking place is actually quite different than the last two decades. Um, second, we see a fantastic amount of innovation taking place in global north or richest cities. So cities like London, Paris, Milan, New York, Portland, Seoul, 
there are really good things going on there that is a lot to learn from. This is also happening in global south cities, which is very exciting, like Bogota, for example, or Sao Paulo is trying to do in some of its transportation. Cities are really innovating and trying to invent things that we need to learn from and scale. The other thing is not so good thing that's happening, and cities in global south are also growing in a way that I feel it's going to really hurt us in the long run because they're growing horizontally. Single-story buildings spread for miles, doesn't produce density, doesn't makes infrastructure investment very expensive, and creates a disconnected city, doesn't get you know the density benefit of a city, that productivity benefit. Because the cities are smaller and don't have enough capacity to manage, they're growing in a way that is not very conducive to a successful city. But you know, when you build cities, you don't change them very easily because once you build the road and build this building, they stay for the next 20, 30 years. And this then bakes in some of the equity problems in these rapidly growing cities. Is this factor one of the reasons for the focus on equity in the World Resources Report? That is one reason, Nicholas. The equity focus is not just for poorer cities. Cities across the world are absolutely unequal. I mean, you saw that because of COVID just now that took place poor people in rich cities and poorer cities. So New York City, for example, suffered much more for both from the disease and death. Minorities, racially segregated data, and poor people all suffered more than the rest of the population. And the job losses that took place, or income losses, were very much focused on the poor. Take India, for example, the massive loss, job loss we saw in the informal sector, India has calculated that lost as much 10 million jobs during this period that they need to recover. So equity is central, I think, to all cities, but it is central also to a successful cities. I mean, you can't imagine a city being successful if they're not more equal. One billion out of 3.5 billion people who live in cities live in slum-like condition. Imagine a family in Bangalore who doesn't have electricity connection. What will they do? They either will burn something or buy a diesel generator and share it with a couple of people. That's terrible for environment. Or if they don't have water supply, they will get the tanker water and boil it. Another terrible thing for environment. So it's not just a moral issue that we have to be more equitable. As cities scientifically would not be more successful and low carbon if it's not more equal. So this framing around equity, how can this understanding be translated into making cities more successful? If you look at our research that we're about to publish, Nicholas, which is uh, towards a more equal city, cities actually need to do many things to be successful. The question is, what is the wedge? What is the entry point that you want to use that you can touch everything? And our research shows that if you took a view that you want to make urban services public transport, schools, uh, medical facilities, roads, water, all the services we just assume away, if you actually prioritize getting it accessible to the poor, it not only will make a more successful city, those services will become become more accessible to everyone else. So, Ani, what one piece of advice would you have for a city leader reading this report? Every city is actually resource-constrained. And one side, the resource concerned, other side, huge demands are put in their place. They have to create jobs, they have to decarbonize, they have to increase quality of life. My one advice to city leaders would be to think about how they can use any investment they're doing, equity focused, that gets them the most out of that particular investment. Whether that's a park, it's a transportation or road, each one investment, you can think through what is the transformation that you're looking for 
that the investment can get to. I think that approach will get them as far as possible from the dollar they have to invest and also get to the goals they need to make it better for all citizens, make it more productive, low carbon, also a higher quality life for every citizen. And that was Annie Dasgupta. You're listening to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. In this episode, looking at our major new report on cities. So cities matter, and understanding the way they're changing and the lives people live in them is critical as we grapple with challenges from reducing emissions to dealing with climate change impacts and simply helping people to thrive. That's where our report Towards a More Equal City comes in. And to find out where that six years of research took us, I turn to Anjali Mahendra, Director of Global Research at the WRI Ross Centre for Sustainable Cities. If we think about the proportion of people who live in urban areas today, it is more than half of the global population. It's 54%. And out to 2050, UN statistics tell us that it will be close to 70%. So cities are growing. They're growing rapidly in parts of the world where some of these environmental challenges are highest. So if you think about just climate risk and vulnerability, it's highest in parts of Asia and Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, where we're going to see the majority of this urban growth occurring. 90% of the urban population increase out to 2050 is expected in these parts of the world. So what happens in cities the way these growing populations consume services, access jobs, live their day-to-day lives is going to have a direct impact on the carbon emissions that are produced, but also on the resilience of our environment, uh, the waste that is produced, the energy that is consumed, and so on. So what happens in cities has a direct linkage with the goals that we're trying to achieve under the Sustainable Development Goals or the Paris Climate Agreement. Much of this growth is in informal settlements. So what kind of special challenges does that bring about? Yeah, that's a good question, Nicholas. The parts of the world I was just talking about where we're going to be seeing this rapid urban growth, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, but also Latin America, Southeast Asia, these are places where a key characteristic that is sometimes ignored of the economy is that a large part of it is informal. You see informality manifested in in multiple ways. There are informal settlements, which basically comprise self-built housing that lower-income people moving into cities or whose families are growing in cities, they live in these because of the lack of decent, affordable housing. So you have informal settlements. You have informal labor. The number goes up to 80 to 90% in countries like India and Kenya, where people are working in insecure jobs with unreliable and irregular incomes. They are the people who've been struggling the most, as we're seeing now during the COVID crisis. And then you have informality in the way urban services are delivered because of the lack of city-provided services, public-provided services, municipal services. And so you have a whole ecosystem of informal actors delivering water, running minibuses for transportation, delivering sanitation services across these countries. So informality is a very important and growing persistent feature of these economies. You've been working on this paper for six years, but since COVID hit, which was about 20 months ago, it's only served to enhance the equity component that you placed at the centre of the argument. Exactly. Um, 
it's very interesting uh, because when we began this this work, when we launched the framing paper of this series, where we started to look at the lived experience of people in cities and how unequal that experience is in terms of accessing the daily services they need. But it doesn't stop at that inequality in access to services. It is about what that inequality in access to services means in terms of the daily burdens or opportunities that they go on to face and that cumulatively create prosperity or drag them down into poverty. And so when we were looking at this in the 2015-2016 timeframe, which is when there was a lot of attention on urban issues, the SDGs had just been adopted in 2015. And there was, for the very first time, a goal for cities and urban areas, goal 11. But I would say we still faced questions from very respectable and brilliant people around the world as we presented the framing for this work and our reasons for focusing on equity issues. Now, what is the economic case for this? Why not climate as an entry point? Why equity? All of these events of the last 18 to 20 months have cast a sort of spotlight on equity issues. And that's been surprising, but good to see, much needed. And what this work will, I think, help actors, key actors around the world understand better is how would you go about moving the needle on equity issues? Part of your argument here is that if you reduce inequality over access to services, this compounds. Better transport equals better job prospects equals more money, better health, education, and so on. And the opposite's also true, that if you take away services, this compounds negatively, as it were. Exactly. That, that is our key argument, Nicholas. And, you know, maybe I can just illustrate with a couple of examples. So you look at sanitation services. Providing facilities for basic safe sanitation, even if they're shared toilets, basically clean sanitation facilities, safe sanitation facilities can protect health. It protects women and girls in particular who are otherwise forced to use open locations and it exposes them to violence. But it also reduces the costs that people pay in terms of trying to self-provide by digging their own pit latrines that they may not have the money to actually clean. It protects the environment because of the fact that when you have this human waste out into open rivers and open drains and into the environment, it creates a wider health risk for the community. So there are multiple benefits that occur not only at the household level, but it has these cumulative effects when you scale that provision of that service across the many, many people, the majority really that are underserved in cities. So there is this sort of cumulative cost health opportunity burden that comes on the household when they don't have these services, but that multiplies many fold when you look at it at a city-wide scale. Anjali Mahendra on the thinking behind WRI's major new report on the future of cities. But how does a report like this, however insightful or well-argued, translate into action? Robin King is Director of Knowledge Capture and Collaboration at the WRI Ross Centre for Sustainable Cities. First question to her, who does she want to read the report? We want everybody to read it, of course, but most important are folks who are involved in sort of as urban change agents within cities. That can be governments, but it also can be civil society. It 
should include the folks that finance cities and that provide funding of different types, which means folks from the financial sector, but also people from the central government and national government and state governments that provide a lot of the money that ends up going to cities and helping address issues related to urban service delivery. We have in the report, we have a lot of graphics that I can I think can be very useful in helping people realize what some of the problems are in a, an organized way. But we also have at the end of each of the sections where we talk about change that's needed, menus and lists of what different kinds of actors can do. So for example, about infrastructure design and delivery and prioritizing the vulnerable, we talk about what city officials can do. We talk about what financial institutions can do. We talk about what national governments can do. We talk about what civil society can do. So that different kinds of actors can find very specific and tangible actions so that they can put some of these recommendations into action. The usual question when you read a report like this is who actually pays for the changes that that are being proposed. But at the moment, thanks to efforts to deal with the impacts of COVID, in some places, there is money available to deal with some of the things that, that are being proposed in the report. Yes. And right now there is some money, although I'd say much of it is not going to the places that need it. And in fact, while we talk as one of the needed transformations on on financing and subsidies is increasing investment in these and spending in these places. It's also about targeting the money that's spent better. And that means spatially in, in terms of different locations. It means highlighting the folks who are underserved and really thinking about prioritizing high impact, low carbon investments that will improve access for the underserved so that they can become more productive and then sort of kick off a virtuous cycle where they become more productive economically, they have more income, they're able to contribute as citizens, and they're able to contribute more taxes as well. So generating additional revenues for the future. When you were doing the research, you came across levers that policymakers could pull to try to make a difference on some of these challenges. Can you give me a couple of the best examples of when things actually went right? I think that one of the general approaches that we talk about extensively in the report is really thinking about how to incorporate the informal sector into service provision in cities. We know that right now there are dramatic gaps between folks that are well-served and folks that are less well-served or the underserved. But we've seen in some places where informal workers are recognized, are granted the ability to bid on public tenders sort of for provision of services. And that has multiple benefits, right? The workers have valued work and are recognized and aren't harassed by the police, which happens in many places to informal workers. They have established and predictable revenue stream that then they can use if they want to access credit or just to get a rental house, right? Or to find other kind of housing to show that they've got some kind of income that's coming and services are provided. 
and when we're thinking about, for example, informal workers in the solid waste management space, right? Recyclers, they're helping on multiple fronts, right? It's helping keep the city cleaner so it looks better. And that increases how everybody thinks about what the city is. And it meets the need for the folks who have garbage accumulating that gets taken away in a timely way. The recyclers then also help in terms of the circular economy and ensuring that pieces of of refuse that can be reused in some way get to folks who can reuse them and incorporate them into other kinds of production. And so for many of the examples that we have, we see multiple benefits, not just one. Can you give me an example of where things like this are happening? Yeah, I, I think that one example that stands out really is Pune in India, where the informal recyclers got together. The city had enlightened leadership, I would say, that then saw an opportunity to create a win-win situation and allowed them to bid for and win and then provide the service of collecting garbage and on the recycling side as well allowing the city to talk about their involvement in improving services, recognizing informal workers and ensuring a better life for them, as well as incorporating them into the city overall. We have similar kinds of examples, I would say, in Brazil and in Colombia that are similar on the solid waste recycling front. And that was Robin King of the WRI Ross Centre for Sustainable Cities on some of the real-world examples of sustainable change that illustrate our new World Resources report towards a more equal city. You can find out more about it and download a copy on our website, wri.org cities. Podcast listeners can find city-related episodes on everything from road safety to the fantastic ideas behind the finalists in our WRI Ross Centre Prize for Cities. And you can subscribe to all of our WRI Big Ideas Into Action podcasts via all the usual podcast apps, SoundCloud or Spotify. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>